We are from the video you should see, if, you, if you've been here with us, or if, if not, you can see from the video we are in a series uh, titled Epic, and really this series is going through the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, we started on Mother's Day with creation, and now this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11. So that's what we'll be working at. We will finish out this series next week. Uh, will be the last sermon in this small series. We'll get through the beginning part of chapter 12. So um, I'm excited about this this morning, but I'm going to be honest with you from the very beginning. This is a difficult text, not in the sense of difficult in that the message is hard to comprehend or that we're wrestling necessarily with weighty matters or even controversial matters. This is a difficult text. Because the first chapter is a list of names. It's, it's a genealogy. And so trying to mine through a genealogy uh, is difficult. Um, if, if we'd be honest, those of us in this room who said, okay, man, I want to read the Bible. I want to read the whole Bible. Um, you know, we kind of start that. I want to read a Bible in a year thing. We get excited in January and about three weeks in, we're in knee deep in law and genealogies. And it's just like... It's just a whole, much, whole lot easier just to read the New Testament. So we either just skip the Old Testament altogether and go straight to the New Testament, or we just give up because it, it's, it's hard, it's difficult, we don't understand why that's there. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at one of those texts, and I hope that this morning what we'll see is that even a text like that can challenge, encourage, strengthen, and, and push us closer to Jesus, even a list of names. Um, so I hope that'll be the case this morning. Um, but like I said, this is a, this is a difficult text to, to teach, um, and so what I'd like to do for us to get started, as always, we are dependent on God's Spirit to open our eyes, to help us understand it, and to apply it and follow it. So if you will, join me as we, as we pray and get started this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us and giving us your word that we might know you love you and follow you. Father, I pray that this morning as we we dive in, you would send the Spirit to open our ears to hear, enlarge our hearts to receive, and that you would show us the beauty of how you've woven this together. May it be something that just pushes us towards Jesus and may it honor and glorify you. We love you, and we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, uh, it's, a, it's a genealogy and then a story that almost seems somewhat kind of random and out of place. So what I want to do is I want to read the entire passage. So that means we're going to read all of chapter 10 and then the first nine verses of chapter 11. And I want to read it in its entirety. And I think because as we hear it, there are certain even kind of rhythms and things that will that'll come out as we're listening to it. It gets us immersed in the text. It gets us thinking about how it's put together. And then as we, after we do this, we'll kind of dive into what I believe that God, God has for us. So let's begin by reading Genesis chapter 10 through Genesis 11.9. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphah, and Togaramah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their, name, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'amah, and Sabteka. The sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Dadon. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. 
From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Racine, between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuim, Pathrusim, and Kalushim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites ascended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the older brother of Japheth, were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad. Shelef, Hazmareveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All of these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Misha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there, and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Okay, that was a mouthful. Lots of names that are hard to pronounce, and most of you wouldn't know if I mispronounced half of them. What do we do with this where do we go with a list of descendants of people we've mostly never heard of that don't really bear seemingly any significance to us what do we do with this do we just gloss over it? I mean, I was looking at a comment, some commentaries this week trying to get ready to preach, and there was even one commentary that had commentary on chapter 9, and I turned the page to get to chapter 10, and you know what they'd done? They just skipped over it. It was like, yeah, there's nothing in chapter 10 we're talking about. Let's get straight to 11. So you're like, okay, is there something that's vital there? And there is. And so what I want us to do is to start this morning really with this statement. The first thing I want us to know, all Scripture is God's Word. That's the first thing that I want us to, to kind of hone in on this morning. Now, most people who come to Remedy, most people who are regular tenders here, they say, I believe that. I believe that the Bible is God's Word. If you'll notice, our, our services are centered around the Word. Everything is pointing to the Scriptures, pointing to the sermon, the time when we open God's Word together. That's why we work through books of the Bible. That's why it is central, it is important to us. And we would say, yes, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, God's Word, every bit of it. But we often get to texts like this, and though we say this is the word of the Lord, 
we almost treat them as if they're either semi-inspired, slightly inspired, or inspired filler. So that it's easy just to pass over them. Surely there's nothing here. Surely God's just trying to get us to the next story, and he just didn't want there to be something abrupt. But that's not the case. So what I'd like to do is I would like to say, what is it that's here that shows us God's handiwork in this passage that seems like it has nothing to do with us? There's there's three things that I want to point out. One, there's intentionality in the way that this is presented to us. Moses, the inspired author, is being led by the Spirit to write this down. And we see this intentionality in several ways. The first one is this. It is different than the other genealogies that are in Genesis. Now, you may not have picked up on this, but if we look back in Genesis chapter 5, we have Adam's descendants all the way to Noah. So you've got Adam, and it's got this pattern that it falls into. Basically, it's when so-and-so had lived this many years, he fathered this person, this person lived this many longer, had sons and daughters, and then he died. And then it picks up with that next son. He lived so many years, had so-and-so. Then he lived so many years, then he died. And it's this pattern that goes on and on and on. And we're watching, we're following this pattern. And then when you get to the end of chapter 9, after Noah and the weird scene with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which we'll talk about in a little bit, when we, when we get to that, notice verse 28 of chapter 9. It says, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so as you're reading this, imagine even reading this for the first time. You're thinking that you're going to settle back into this pattern of somebody living, having sons, living for this long, and then dying, because that's the pattern of the genealogies. Now this genealogy comes out, and it's totally different. It's set up a different way. And if you look in chapter 11, verses 10 through 31, or 10 through 32, you don't have to read that now, but the genealogy echoes back to the genealogy in chapter 5. It's kind of written a very similar way. We're going to talk about that next week. So the question is, why is it that Moses would put this genealogy together differently? It's not an accident. There's intentionality. There's a couple of things. One is that if you go through and if you look, all of these talks about these are the the descendants who who were nations, and you count up all of them, which most of you I know already did, you know that you get to the number of 70. Now that's not just something that just put out there, but it's interesting that the number 70 is used all throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, to show us completeness, to show us something in its totality. So later you'll see that as Israel goes down to Egypt, the descendants of Jacob go down to Egypt. There are 70 in number, and it's intentionally told us that there are 70 to show all of Jacob's descendants, all completely are going down to Egypt. Places are shown where this number 70 is important. How do we know that that's the intention? Well, look over and over again when you look at the words that are, that are listed. Look in verse 5, okay? Verse 5, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, and in their nations. Now, look at verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Look at verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Verse 32, these are all the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The intentionality part of listing this off is to show us that this is a table of the nations. This is those who have been descended from Noah and that after the flood, every person who's on the face of the earth is a descendant of Noah. And from right here, they are now going. The, the flood has subsided. Noah and his sons have come out and they are filling the earth. They are they're doing what it is God said. They're dispersing from there. And he's letting us know that from right here, the view isn't only on Israel, isn't only one group of people. The entire group group of the nations of the earth are in view here. That's important. And the ultimate importance we're really going to see next week. This theme of nations comes up over and over and over again. So I'm going to leave that hanging. 
And I want you to come back and see why that's really important. But there's intentionality. Moses is intentionally telling us, this is all the nations. This is it. This is every one of them. They're here. So we see intentionality in that. But we also see intentionality when we look at Ham's descendants. Now, if you were here last week, you already know the story. If you weren't here last week, let me give you a very small snapshot of the story. Uh, They get off of the ark, Noah and his descendants. Noah plants a vineyard, makes some wine, has a little bit too much to drink, ends up naked in his tent. Awkward. Ham walks in and makes it even more awkward by gazing strangely at his father and then going and asking his brothers to come in and do the same thing. It's just, it's just weird. And you looked at that, and we see this, this mess that's happened. And so the, what the, his two brothers put a cloak on backwards, and they you know, throw it over him so they don't have to see it. And at the end of it, we see that there's this curse on, on Ham, a blessing on Shem and Japheth, but a curse on Ham. But I want you to look back at something and see if you notice something. Look at this curse that's in verse 25 of chapter 9. It says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, she shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Did you notice that the name Ham isn't listed in the curse at all? Who is Canaan? Imagine you're reading this for the first time. The first time you're reading this, you're following along, you're reading, oh my gosh, that was weird. And then this curse is pronounced, and you're like, who is Canaan? Where did he come from? What's going on with him? And the author has intentionally showed how God has foreshadowed something in speaking of a person and their descendants as almost the same person. Why do we know that? Well, let's look at the descendants of Ham. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with Bible stories and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, some of these names probably already stood out to you. But what I want to do is I want to just walk through and list the totality of the descendants of Ham. If you're not familiar with the Scripture, these may not stand out to you as much. I'm going to try to tell you why they're important, and I'm not even sure I'm going to get all of them. But let's look. First, did you notice that one of the sons of Ham is Egypt? Egypt, the nation that will one day enslave the nation of Israel, whom God will have to send all the plagues on and strike Pharaoh in order for them to be let go. One of the descendants of Ham is Canaan, the nations which Israel would have to conquer as they go back into the promised lands. Those that would always be a thorn in their side and would drag them away from God. Canaan is a descendant of Ham. Babel which the nation of Babylon comes from, is the very beginning of Babylon. And if we know anything about the Scripture, we know ultimately Babylon is going to come and conquer uh, Israel and take them into exile. Nimrod goes into the place of Assyria and he makes Nineveh. Assyria, another country, another nation that is going to come and invade Israel and take them into exile. Nineveh, a wicked nation that God wants to send the prophet Jonah to, and they're so bad, Jonah doesn't even want to go. He goes towards Tarshish, which is one of the descendants of Japheth. He says, no, I can't go there because they're so wicked. Nineveh. Kalushim, which most of us probably never heard of, but if you're familiar with the Bible, you've heard of the Philistines. And the author notes in there, in a little parenthesis, this is the, 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 the descendants of, of Kalushim are the Philistines. And if you read the Philistines, what it comes to your mind, what do we think? Man, we think David and Goliath. We think the Philistines always, constantly a plague on Israel. Sidon, which is oftentimes pired, uh, partnered with Tyre, two nations down at the coast, which plague Israel, hate Israel. They don't have good connections. Um, Verses 16 and 17, we see the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, all of these nations that as you get to the book of Deuteronomy and Israel is having to come back and conquer the promised land, constantly they're told, you've got to drive out the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites. Go through there and you'll see those nations are listed over and over and over and over again. And then when you get into verse 19, you find out that the territory of the Canaanites went all the way to Sodom and Gomorrah, two places where just in a couple of chapters we're going to see God utterly obliterate because of their wickedness. 
It is not unintentional that Moses points out for us these descendants of Ham, showing us God's curse that is there, God's curse that is put on Ham is broad, it's there. We have already encountered some of these, and some of these are listed even before they become a plague to Israel. Israel, even before the nation would have to deal with them. God is showing us over and over and over again this massive group of people that all come descended from Ham. And he wants us to understand the magnitude of sin, the way that generations just follow after those before him, and the need to turn. You've got this crazy picture of all these nations. And we see the wickedness of them all. So there's intentionality there. But then there's also intentionality with including small and somewhat seemingly unimportant details. Okay? I don't know if you caught this, but you know, you're going through all this genealogy and then all of a sudden like there's a guy who pops up and it's like Moses just kind of steps aside. Nimrod, okay? What a name. I used to call people Nimrod all the time when I thought they were being idiots, okay? So Nimrod, all right? So you get down here to nine or verse eight. Cush fathered Nimrod. Now, what you're expecting is then he just to list anybody else that Cush fathers and then go on. But there's an aside here, okay? He fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. We look at that and we're like, huh, Nimrod must have been a pretty sharp guy. Maybe he was one of the cool ones who was included in this, this list of reprobates. But then we read, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. The author is telling us this because he wants us to hold on to this because he's about to get to Babel. Actually, when you look at Nimrod, his name in Hebrew means we shall rebel. That's his name. So somebody had a kid and they thought, who was it that had a kid? Cush. Cush was like, got a new baby boy. We'll call him, we shall rebel, fight the power, stick it to the man. Right here. That's the name. It's going to be his name. But that's his name. We shall rebel. That's, that's who he is. And then it says something interesting. It says that he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Now, this term mighty man has actually already shown up in the book of Genesis. In fact, when you go back and you look at Genesis 6, 4, when it talks about the Nephilim, how the, the sons of God saw the daughters of man and they came together and we talked about how that was this picture of the righteous race and the unrighteous race coming together and caring less about God and wanting to, wanting to follow themselves and their own desires. The terms there, they were mighty men on the earth, Genesis 6, 4, same term. One of the commentators I read said, actually this term could be translated tyrant. This is not a glowing review of Nimrod, okay? He's not like some glorified redneck with deer heads all over his living room. And he's like, he's a mighty hunter. Dude can kill anything. What his point here is he is a guy whose very name is, we shall rebel against God. And he, the, the terms used point us back pre-flood to the people that God has just destroyed. The author is intentionally pointing us back to say, hey, this Nimrod guy, not a hero, not somebody to inspire after, not somebody to name your children after. He's like the ones before the flood. And in fact, his kingdom began with Babel. Now, the first time you read that, that's no big deal to you. That's just another name. But in a minute, we're going to see why that's important. So this little glimpse of Nimrod is already previewing what's important that's coming up. But then there's one that, to me, I have always wondered, what in the world is going on here? And that is over in verse 25. We're in the descendants of Shem. And then verse 25 says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. What? And so I look at the end of Peleg. There's a little number four in my Bible. So I look down here and it says Peleg means division, which makes me think Eber was an accountant or a math major or something because he named his son Division. What is going on? Why would you name your kid Division? What is happening here? What is this dividing that's being brought up? And to be honest with you, I, it's not like I looked at this and was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. I understand why he named him Division and why that little note is there. 
But as I was reading this week and some people brought something to light, I was like, man, that is crazy. What we find is that we're reading through this. We're reading through this genealogy. And when you get to Peleg, notice that it says, To Eber was born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. And then what we find is that as we continue on all the way down to the end of this chapter, we're following the line of Joktan all the way down to all the nations, and we ultimately are led into Babel. Now, Babel's not a descendant of Joktan, okay? That, that's Nimrod. We've already covered him. But this whole line, this division, actually textually takes us to Babel. So Joktan and his line take us down into Babel. What's interesting is after the story of Babel, you get to Genesis 11.10. It says these are generations of Shem, which we've already had. It picks up similar to what the previous generations were. It says Shem was a 100-year-old, father to Pakshad, Shem the blah, 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 blah. Not blah, blah, blah. I don't, that, that doesn't write. But get down to verse 16. When Eber lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years, had those sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he followed Reu. Notice the dividing line right here. When we follow Joktan, we're led to Babel. When we follow Peleg, we'll find next week that we're led to Abraham. This whole idea of division here is intentionally to show us at this point in time, we know we should be following Shem, and some of Shem's descendants point us to Babel, but some of Shem's descendants point us to Abraham, who ultimately points us to Jesus. So that's why he says the earth was divided. His name was division. It wasn't random. It was intentional on the part of the Spirit to show us something very important. So see, there's intentionality in even all these small details that seem just thrown in. And you wonder, is like, is it just some little anecdote that's tossed in? No, God is putting them there because he wants us to see things. So there's intentionality, but also what we find is there's, that these genealogies help us also provide a unity within Scripture. So there's intentionality, but there's also a unity. In other words, it kind of serves as a bridge. So the 70 idea, the 70, the complete and total nations, we're like, okay, that's a cool idea, but why does he do that? Why does God list this as all the descendants of Abraham or all the nations? And we find the answer to that as we get to the Abraham narrative. He has told us this. He's bridging these narratives together. In, in fact, verses, actually, chapters 10 and 11 kind of serve as this bridge between Noah and Abraham. And it's an important bridge. We've got to see. It's not like we could just pull the story of Noah and then put the story of Abraham by it. Because how in the world do you get from Noah to Abraham? And it shows us there's a unity, a continuity all throughout Scripture. These aren't just random, unrelated stories meant to teach us how to be a nice person and not be mean and some kind of moral platitudes. Every single one of these accounts are related to us in such a way that we would see the vast, overworking sovereignty of God in all of history to point people to Jesus. So these things provide parts of these bridges to keep everything connected. They also, this genealogy helps us keep looking for the seed. Because as we remember, Genesis 3.15, there's a promise of one who is coming who's going to fix everything. We're watching, we're reading along. Cain is obviously not the seed. Maybe it's Seth. No, it's not Seth. He starts that genealogy. We get all the way down to Noah. He's a righteous man in his generation. God saves him and his family. He's in the ark. Maybe Noah's the one. Maybe Noah's the seed. He's the one we're supposed to be looking for. Everything lands. We think it's great. Then Noah plants the vineyard, the whole naked accident. We're like, he's definitely not the seed. Okay, so maybe it's one of his his sons, and then we see that from his sons descend all the nations. So we kind of put pause on the seed thing, but we're still looking, where is this one who is promised? There's nothing said about anybody in here. In fact, what we're told now is it's just all the nations. Where is the one who's promised? Where is he coming? And that's why we pick back up in 11 with the genealogy in the same way. We're now looking for that seed again. We know he's a descendant of Shem. Where does he come from? So that's way of the person. The other is the constant repetition of certain words. So the word language here helps connect us to the idea of Babel. 
the words nation help us to understand and be ready to hear about the nations. So even this wording, this language is used very intentionally. It provides unity between these narratives. The other thing is that this does provide for us instruction. So this passage will provide for us instruction. And to be honest, this is what most of us are looking for when we read the Bible. Most of us, or at least in my experience, what I've seen, and I'm guilty of this too, is that when we, when we open the Bible and we want to read the Bible, what we want to know, what do we need to do? How do we need to act? How do we need to stop acting? What is it we need to do? And so we kind of come to the Bible almost inadvertently as a rule book. Show me what I need to do. Show me how I need to change, what I need to fix about my life, and then I'm good to go. And if we can find something that is tangible and quickly accessed, we say, I got it, that was good, awesome. And if we get to somewhere that doesn't give us this immediate, this is how you live, whatever, we say, well, that's not a very practical text. Let me find something that is. Or we hear a sermon. Somebody opens the word. And our bent, for most of us, is we're prone to saying, okay, that's cool, thanks for teaching me about that. What do I do with it? Give me the practical portion. Can I tell you something? This is a pet peeve of mine, so take it for what it's worth. Theology is the most practical thing you can ever have in life. The way you think about God changes everything. Everything. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Your eating and drinking is transformed by the way you think about God. There's nothing more practical than that. So as someone is teaching and you are opening the word and you're learning things about God, don't say, here's the theology, now I'm ready to get to the practical. Theology is practical. It changes everything. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Our minds must be filled with the right thoughts about God in order for us to make the right response. So please don't think, well, the practical are the four steps that I take. Learn the deep things, and they will shape the way you respond. It is practical. So by application then, so what, what should we be looking for? If that's the case, I, see, I, I hesitate in saying stuff like that sometimes because then somebody's like, okay, so now I read the Bible. I don't need to be looking for things to do. Okay, don't, don't go there. But what is application? What does it mean? What are some ways that we find application even when it's not four steps of things to do? I don't know why I keep saying the number four, okay? Two steps, two things to do, all right? Here's some things. One your application may simply be a deepened awe of God. Sometimes the application you get from a text is that you just stand back in utter silence because God has done something so amazing. Can I tell you something? That is a great application. To catch a glimpse of God as who He is, to revel in His sovereignty, in His majesty, that is great application. Another thing, deepened affections for Jesus. Imagine if you read a text, and when you get done, all that you can say is, I love Jesus even more. I love, in, in the 10 minutes from the time that I opened this up, words came to my eyes, they penetrated my mind, and from there, I love Jesus, even a smaller bit more than I did when I opened it. Is there any greater application than that? What about a clear understanding of life and reality? Sometimes when we read stories and stuff, we see the, the facts about human nature. We see who we are. We see how people operate, and we understand, wait a minute, that's the way people still operate today. Whoa, that's how my heart works. Oh, I see now the effects of sin in my life. What great application in reading the scripture. Maybe something we need to cling to and believe. Maybe it's a way that we need to change the way we view life and others around us. Or it could very well be a sin which needs to be confronted with the gospel. 
We've got to make sure that as we come to God's word and look for instructions, we're not just looking for actions to take, but let it expand our view of God, the world, life, and the gospel. That's application. So from this text, two main ideas of instruction that I believe that are here. There could be more. I'm sure there are many more. These are the two that came to mind. If I did a lot more, we'd go over time and we can't do that. First one is this. The fame of Jesus must be our life's mission. The fame of Jesus must be our life's mission. Now, we're, we're into chapter 11 now, and let me show you why I say that, because as we look at these people, we will find that those in Babel, this is not their line of thinking. This is not the way they're approaching life. Let's look at it. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll see why. Now the language had one lang- now the er- whole earth had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now we're taken back to the story of Nimrod, because we've already told the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. They found it in the land of Shinar. And so we're, the author's connecting these dots for us. But one of the things that's interesting is if you notice in reading the genealogies, did you notice, and we pointed this out over and over, that each of them had their own languages? They each had their own languages. They each had their own languages. They each had their own languages. And then when you get to 11.1, it says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. It's not like God just was like, just kind of throwing that whole language thing out there. Notice he said, one language, same words. And he's intentionally pointing out to us, this is anachronistic, or meaning it's intentionally placed out of order, Okay. Because we've not learned nothing about languages or anything. We've been sitting here and seeing that they all got their own different languages. And then all of a sudden, boom, he throws in. Now, at one point in time, the earth actually had just one language. And he connects it back to Babel. It's important because that's intentional. Again, we've already seen this. He's placed this here. The Holy Spirit has said, put this story of Babel at the end of this because it's going to connect all the pieces together for part of this. So they have one language, same words. And as the people migrated from the east, now that's intentional, this eastward movement that's going on here. um, We see this multiple times throughout the Pentateuch. And it's always a movement away from God, away from the blessing of God. So we see Adam and Eve, once they rebel, they're kicked out of the garden and they're pushed towards the east. Cain, when he comes under the judgment of God, what he has done, he, he moves towards the east and he builds a city. Here we see people are migrating towards the east to the land of Shinar, and they're going to build a city. We'll later see other people all throughout. And if you just pay attention, you'll see people who are moving away from God are moving towards the east. It's a theme that's brought up. And so we're let in right now to know, okay, we've already seen Nimrod's not the kind of guy you want to be like. These people are moving towards the east. The author is just giving us so many clues to say, this is not a good thing that's about to happen here. Okay? So they, they, they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And so they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the heavens, okay? So there's nothing wrong necessarily. I don't think, we don't see anything in the text that's wrong with them building a city. But what we've got to do is notice two things. One, they want to build a tower that goes all the way up into the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, we know that God has blessed them and said, fill the earth, subdue it, Really scatter, scatter around, I've given you the land, but notice what the people are doing. Let's build a city with a tower to heaven, and let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the earth. Do you see what they're doing? They're living a life completely contrary to what God has set out for them. He gave them the land, they want a tower to heaven. He blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, and scatter. They build a city so that they don't have to move. Over and over, we're shown here, they're not seeking God, His ways, and His blessing. They're saying, we're going to build a city, and it's going to be about us. And people from all over, they're going to see this tower from way far away. We're on a plane, and so it's a flat place. So there's people even from afar off, they're going to see a city, and they're going to be like, oh, there's those people from Babel. Those people are amazing. 
Do you see what they did? And so all of this is going to be about them. We will build a name for ourselves. We will do our thing. We will do it our way. We will make this for ourselves. And here's the the problem for us. If we're not careful, we're prone to do the same thing. Most of us aren't building skyscrapers in a plane so that people will look at it and say, well, that's great, look at Look at Jack in his really tall building there. He's amazing. We don't do that. But you know what? Sin causes us to be at the middle, a desire to be at the middle of everything. Martin Luther said that we were born curved in on ourselves. Basically, we are the center of everything. And if we are the center of everything, then we live in such a way as to make our own personal happiness and desires the end goal of all that we do. So if I'm living for myself with my own personal desires and my own personal happiness and my own everything, then I'm going to orient everything in my life so that that is the point of living. I'm going to get it all so that I am the center of it. That's what the people in Babel were doing. We don't want to do things the other way. We know what God said, but it doesn't matter. Because this is what's going to make us happy. This is what's going to be great for us. This is what people are going to think great about us. So we're going to do this. And we we'll do the same thing. We'll take our lives and so orient it around ourselves that we become the center of our life. Even for people who are professed followers of Jesus. We'll, we'll come to church and be involved in different things and, and we'll love Jesus, but we'll still, we can still fall into the trap of making our lives about ourselves. So how is that true today? Well, do people hunger and thirst for righteousness if it will cost them a promotion, a new car, a relationship? We've all heard it. I know what I should do, but if I do that, then I won't get this or I won't have this. And so what we find then is Jesus really the center of your life. Because if Jesus is the center of your life, if Jesus is your everything, if you can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If that's your life's calling, then when Jesus calls us to do something, we do it no matter what the cost is. But if we say, this is going to cost me this relationship, this is going to cost me this way of living, this is going to cost me this... And we say, well, I'm going to choose that over what God wants for me. Then we find our life's not centered around Jesus. Our life is centered around us. And we're living to make a name for ourselves. So our lives must be lived with exalting the name of Christ as the center at all. That means if you are a police officer, your life is not lived to enforce the law. Your life is lived to make Jesus famous. Let's be clear. Jesus already is famous. Our life mainly, basically shines, shines a spotlight on him to show how famous he is. So your life is not lived to enforce the law. Your life is, how do I make Jesus famous where I am, what I do, how I do it? So how, as a police officer, do I make Jesus famous? How, as someone who bakes bread, do I make Jesus famous? How, as a stay-at-home mom, do I make Jesus famous? How, as a college student, do I make Jesus famous? And so places like, you know, sometimes stay-at-home moms will, will, will feel like, what am I doing? How am I contributing? What, what is life like? How can I make Jesus famous? I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm here with three or four kids every single day. How do I make Jesus famous? Can I tell you something? There are some wonderful beautiful gifts that have been given to you and your children and you of all people have the most greatest wonderful opportunity to show them the fame of jesus when you change diapers because you love jesus when you wipe noses because you love jesus when you plan groceries and you show them all of this god has given us his family and he's blessed me to be your mom and i can help take care of you you are showing the fame of jesus to your children when you're a college student 
and you say things like, I want to interact with my friends in such a way that they know Jesus is awesome. I want to choose my classes in such a way that Jesus is seen as famous. I want to talk about my professors in such a way that the world knows that Jesus is my ultimate priority. I'm going to spend my face time, my, my free time. I'm going to post on Facebook. All these things that I'm going to do, I want to do in such a way, not that's cheesy or annoying to people, but in such a way that my life simply reflects Jesus is ultimate. So it's going to change the way I spend free time. It's going to change the way that I choose classes. It's going to change the way that I choose a major. If you're a mechanic, you're going to be working on cars. How does making Jesus famous look in that? You're going to work your hardest. You're not going to cheat people. You're going to do things right. You're going to choose the right way. You're not going to buy the cheaper parts that you know are going to break in three weeks so that they have to come back and you have to fix them. You're going to get the highest quality things and the bottom line is not your motivator. Jesus is your motivator because you want the reputation of somebody who loves Jesus so you put it all into your work. You see, every single thing does that and it's not just work. It's our lives. It's the way we spend our free time. It's everything. Our lives must be oriented around Jesus because he is the center of the universe. And if we orient it around ourselves or anybody else, we place an idol right in the middle and say, God, you're not worthy to make life all about. Let's not fall into the same trap of the people of Babel who put themselves at the center to make a name for themselves. Let us exalt the fame of Jesus as our life's goal. Next thing we learn is really is this. The justice and mercy of God are powerful motivations. I was, was talking with a friend of mine about this passage. Um, he's a, another pastor. And I um, was talking to him about what I was preaching on. And he said one of the things he loves about this, which I thought was awesome, is when you read verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children uh, of man had built. It's just kind of this picture. Remember what are they building the tower for? They're building the tower to be up to the heavens. And kind of this, this is the big word, anthropomorphic. God's, God's everywhere. God knows what the tower looks like, obviously. But it's this God taking on kind of human characteristics where he has to come down and stoop way down to see their itty-bitty little tower. They think they're coming up to God, and God says, I've got to come down to you to see this little scrub brush that you're putting together down here. The, the, the characteristics here, they think they're something and God's like, you know, we're near me. I have to come down to you to see this thing. So God comes down. He sees it, and he says this. He says, behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this, will, this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Now, you, you could read this like God's worried. Oh, my goodness, do you see what they're doing? They're building this tower. Man, if they keep building, they're actually going to get to heaven. They might take over heaven. We've got to do something to fix this now to the Batmobile. No, it's not what God's doing. He's not coming down like worried about this. He's coming down. He sees them in their rebellion doing everything that they want to do, going deeper and deeper and deeper into their rebellion. And he says, if we don't stop them, they will go deeper and never stop. So God comes down and he punishes their sin. He punishes their self-centeredness. He confuses their language. They no longer can work together. They no longer can do this. And he scatters them. The very thing they're trying not to do, be dispersed, it says, and the Lord dispersed them. He throws them out. He shuts down the operation. He kicks them out of there. The very thing they were trying not to do, God sovereignly works it out anyway that they're still doing it. And this is a picture of God's judgment. Babel comes up constantly in the scripture. He's always a picture of people who have rebelled against God, who are under God's judgment. Even when we see in the New Testament, when people are speaking in tongues, Paul says, that's why you got to have to have an interpreter because if people come in and they hear this strange language, they'll be under judgment. Paul's pointing back here to the Tower of Babel. Why? They can't understand each other. They can't communicate. And they can't hear the word of God in their own language. So what he's doing here, this is a picture of judgment. They're being scattered. So God comes down and he punishes their sin. But notice something else. This is not simply a picture of judgment. This is actually also a picture of mercy. What does God say? It's only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them. God says this is just the, this is just the beginning. 
And if we let them continue going, they will get deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And so God brings judgment and he cuts off that pathway for them to continue walking in sin. Now our hearts are evil, we're prone to find sin, we're going to walk in a different direction. But what God does is he cuts it off. He doesn't say, just let them build their towers, never going to get up here anyway, it doesn't matter, and then one day I'll just knock them all down. God says, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to exercise judgment, but I'm going to cut this way off so that they won't continue in this sin. There's no, this, this is how God works. This is what God does. Adam and Eve, they deserved death. And what does God do? He provides coverings for them. Cain killed Abel. God spared his life. These people want to build a name for themselves. And God cuts off their pathway of sin and disperses them. In the midst of judgment, we see mercy. But is not the greatest picture of that the cross? Jesus, who was perfect, did not deserve any wrath of God, did not deserve any punishment, bore the wrath that we deserved. Fully this horrific picture of the wrath of God being poured out on Christ. And as we see this picture of God's judgment that we deserve being put on Jesus, do we not see a glorious avenue of God's mercy for us? God is the same. He has always done this. He will judge sin and he loves us. That's why the book of Romans said he put forth Christ so that he might be both just and the justifier of those who believe. Oh, the goodness of God that he would even in the midst of judgment provide a route of mercy. And we see that in the cross. So what do we do with this? Well, there's three things kind of relied, kind of tied to each of the three points. The first one is this. We must treasure all of Scripture. What a gift we've been given that God would put down His message to us in words. Even as we've been thinking about language this morning, we have God's Word in words that we can hear and read and comprehend. And the Holy Spirit who inspired those words has guarded those words and opens them up to our mind that we might hear them and receive them and do them and be in awe of them. That is the magnitude of God's word to us. So when we get to these difficult passages, let us not gloss over them. Let us not just turn the page to try to get to the more interesting story. Let's wrestle with them. Let's say... What is here? God, what are you trying to teach me? What do you want me to know? How do I need to be changed? How do I stand more in awe of you? God, why did you put this here? I don't understand, but I know that you've done it. I know that even these lists of names are your words. So Father, by the power of the Spirit, open my mind, please, that I might see what you're trying to teach me here. And it may be something huge or it may be something small, but let us approach every bit of the Scripture as This is God's word. Lord, speak to me in this. We also got, we've got to keep the big picture in mind. Sometimes we get wrapped into these little things. And so we're like, how in the world does this genealogy mean anything? And then we kind of see it in the grand scheme of things. And we see how it's that brings that unity, that connection as a bridge over it. And so we see that. And what we say is, oh, the wonder of God's word that he would weave it together in such a way. We see that. And more than anything, we have to pray that the Spirit would open our eyes to see what's there. He is our teacher. He is our comforter. The one who's given us the word, he will open it to us. Secondly, to go along with the second point, I really want you to ask yourself this question. What is your goal in life? What is your life all about? When you die, what is it that you want people to say about you? What is your goal in life? Some of you may have never thought about that before, so now you're trying to think of it. Some of you can kind of answer that, and I don't want you to be hyper-spiritual when you answer I just want you to answer quickly. What is it that's going in your life? And if it's, if it's not about Jesus, then there, there's a good strong chance that maybe your life is right now about building a name for yourself and not a name for Jesus. Now, I want you to be careful because it's, it's real easy for us as church people to say, 
I want to be a mom for the glory of God. Or I want to be a mechanic for the glory of God. Or I want to be a computer programmer for the glory of God. And we feel like if we, if we toss that for the glory of God on the end of it, then we're good. We're good. All we've got to do is just put that phrase on the end and then we're good. Don't do that. That's okay. You can be a mom for the glory of God. Amen. Yes, yes, yes. Do that. But ask yourself the question, what does that mean? Don't use a phrase because it's the right phrase and it says the right thing. If you're going to be a mom for the glory of Jesus, wrestle with what does that mean to be a mom for the glory of Jesus? How are you orienting your life? If you're a computer programmer, for the glory of Jesus, what does that mean? That's a tough question. It's easy to say for the glory of Jesus, but it is tough then to really wrestle through. What does that look like? Day in, day out. I'm putting numbers on a computer screen. How do I do that for the name of Jesus? And as you wrestle and you ask those questions and you really begin to say, God, I want to do this. God will bring people around you who will help show you that. He'll open your eyes to opportunities to do that. And it'll probably come in ways you're not even expecting. Some big, some small. May mean life change. May not mean life change. Ask that question. Wrestle with it. And make sure that your life is on a trajectory to show the fame of Jesus to the rest of the world. Third thing is this. Let judgment and mercy motivate you. Now, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, God's judgment doesn't motivate you in the sense of, okay, I'm worried God's going to strike me with a lightning bolt or revoke my heaven card or something like that. If I, if I do something wrong, so I've got to do things right because he's going, to, he's going to hate me if I don't or he's going to, no, 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 no. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No means no in Greek, in Hebrew, in every other language you think of. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that we must fear. We must never go and say, well, I can't do this because God might hate me now. He may not love me anymore. If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. So judgment doesn't motivate you that way. But what judgment does is it helps us to see God hates sin. And if we, according to Romans 8, if we set our mind on the flesh, it's death. But to set the mind on things of the Spirit is life and peace. Don't set our minds on the things of the flesh, those things that God's hate. If our mind is set on the flesh, we cannot please God. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. Hate the things that God hates inside of you and say, Lord, I hate these things. I know you don't like this because it's sin. And you have said there's no condemnation for me whatsoever. So God, these things that you detest, give me a detestation for them. Spirit, show me how to put them to death that I might find life in you. That is how judgment motivates us. If God is going to be so serious about sin that he's going to judge it in Christ on the cross, why would we play around with it? Let us flee from it. Can I tell you something? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, the wrath of God poured out on Christ is not effective for you. If you do not trust Christ alone for your salvation. If you're trusting in your good works, if you're trusting in your good name, if you're trusting in trying to be a good person or coming to the right church or maybe I can do the right things, let me tell you, you are under the wrath of God. And if you're here this morning and you hear that, God is not standing here saying, I condemn you, you have no hope. He's saying, you're under the wrath and Christ is there to receive you. Flee to Jesus, run to Jesus, turn from your sin, follow Jesus. God is leaning out to you in mercy right now saying, you are rebellious, but I love you and I want you to come to me. There's no mistake that you're here this morning. There's no mistake that you are here hearing God calling out to you. Come, turn from your sin, follow Jesus. Let that judgment be something that pushes you to Christ. But also let mercy motivate you. Oh, the mercy of Jesus that on the cross he would provide a way that we might find righteousness and live in righteousness, that we would not get that which we deserve. Oh, the mercy of Jesus. Let that push you forward. 
Let that drive you in such a way that you say, I want my life to be all about Jesus. In every bit, the smallest details, every moment is all about Jesus. I'm going to pray and we're going to have a time to respond. As we stand, as we sing, you may, you may want to stand and, and just stand in awe of the grace of God and sing. Maybe you need to sit and pray. Maybe you need to talk to somebody. Uh, if you need to talk to somebody, I'm going to be in the back. would love to talk with you. Maybe you don't know anything about Jesus. Maybe you came here and you're like, I need to turn and follow Jesus. I don't know what that looks like. Come talk to me. Talk to the person who brought you. Find somebody. Don't leave this room without saying, I want to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for random texts that remind us random lessons that are gigantic for us. The Holy Spirit, we, we are desperate for you. Anytime that we try to do this on our own, we find such shortcomings. But oh, the glory that you would take and open our eyes to this, that we might see it and follow it and love it. Father, thank you for being so intricately involved, not only in our own lives, but in the, the whole history of the world. Father, grant us grace to, to love you and trust you more. If anybody here today is not a follower of Jesus, I pray that even now they would turn their eyes on the cross, that they would see the enormity of the sacrifice you gave for us, and that they would trust and follow Jesus. Lord, we, we love you, and we ask all this in the name of Christ for his glory alone.